We're opening our Bibles again. We're going to the second book of Samuel. Dun, dun, dun. Crossing the threshold from 1 Samuel. Uh, we're in chapters 1 and 2 of 2 Samuel. And quite ironically, this is actually ending our series. Uh, we were tracing David from shepherd boy to king, and we're about to see David become king. As we're thinking about our text this morning, I was reminded as I was studying this text that we all have a past. And some of us, we carry our past like a load of baggage upon our shoulders. Or maybe another way that you can think about your past is there are a bunch of pictures on display like in an art gallery. And so you walk through your memories and you see the joys, the frustrations, Maybe your childhood home, your childhood itself. There are moments in your past that feel like triumphs and other moments where there were abuses and inequities. But something that we all come to terms with or must come to terms with in the life of faith is that if we're going to live the life that God intends for us to live, and if we're going to advance in the life of faith, then we have to refuse to dwell upon the, the bad and defeating memories, we have to learn to trust God with our yesterdays. What I love about the Lord Jesus Christ is that Jesus is able to redeem those bad pictures in your art gallery. He can do that. And what we find out is that faith is the difference maker in all of this. I was just reading in my quiet time, Psalm 125.1, I was reminded of the centrality of faith. It said this, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. I love that. Which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Faith is the difference maker. It's able to change your circumstances right now. It's able to redeem your past as you trust God. Now, as we think about the life of David, David is in a transitional phase, and he has an art gallery full of pictures up to this point. From his life of 17 years old all the way to the age of 30, David spent much of his time on the run, many bad memories, many bitter moments, many moments that could produce resentment in his heart. But what we're going to see is a remarkable transformation and transition in the life of David as he steps into the kingship. His faith makes him like Mount Zion. You can think of the text that we're looking at this morning much like the transitional period of the president in the first 100 days. Now, as you're watching the president step into office and conduct those first 100 days, there's a lot of emphasis on that time period because we say this is really setting the tone for this administration. What kind of president are they going to be like? What will be their priorities? And here in these first sections in first Sam, or Second Samuel, David's um, transitional phase sets up the first 20 years of his kingship. Now, something happens when he's 50, something significant. He makes a very big mistake then, and that sets the tone for the next 20 years. But right now, we're going to see the tone setter for the first 20 years at age 30. So let's pick up 
We're in 2 Samuel chapter 1. We're reading a lot of text. Now, I know we live in the like three-minute video age right now, so we're going to have to lean in and, and concentrate on the text, but Christian formation is all about the mind. So let's give God our attention. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on a spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered him, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. So did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel. Because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented in this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, he said it, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ascalon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. Your mountain, you mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. For the blood of the slain from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. 
Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of a woman. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to him, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. So as we pick up in these first hundred days, we're going to see certain characteristics or features of David's initial decision-making. We're going to begin by looking at the discernment of the king. Now in the story, we're in three days now past Ziklag, that epic chase that we followed in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And the transition from David into the kingship begins with some devastating news from the battlefront of Mount Gilboa. Think about this news. Israel has suffered a catastrophic defeat. Saul is dead. Jonathan, dead. Now, a messenger comes to David bringing this news. We've heard the expression, perception is reality, but kings can't always go off of that tidbit of wisdom. They know that oftentimes things are not as exactly how they appear. David sees this messenger come, and this messenger has all the outward signs of mourning. His clothes are torn. He has ashes on his head. He looks ragged and exhausted. He has just taken an 80-mile trek from the battlefront to come and give David this piece of information, but the story just doesn't seem to add up. So David starts asking questions. Where did you come from? Well, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead. Who are you? And the deeper that he questions this messenger, the more he is concerned with what he's being told. Well, the messenger claims that he saw Saul and Jonathan die and that he's an Amalekite. Now, let's put a big parathetical bracket around that. An Amalekite is one of the enemies of God. And this Amalekite claims that he dealt the final death blow to Saul. And what's worse, he comes with some evidence. He has the king's crown and the armlet. Now, there's some holes in this story, but those articles, that's proof positive that Saul is dead. I mean, he wouldn't just give that to anyone. Now, think about this story and why it's shaky. What a king be found alone without an armor bearer or without a royal guard around them at all? Would you just kind of stumble upon a king in a battle all by yourself? 
Well, David doesn't have all of the details of the situation. He only has his discernment. But we know a little more. Because if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 31, you can actually read the biblical narrator's account of how all of this transpired. And I'm going to give you a pro tip when it comes to reading the Bible this morning. Here it is. You ready for this? When we must choose between the story of an Amalekite and the biblical narrator, (laughs) we should always trust the biblical narrator and assume the Amalekite is lying. You see, this guy over here, he's looking for favor from the soon-to-be king, and he is making a great miscalculation. Now, David, he doesn't have a biblical narrator walking around over his head, like dictating the next steps of his life in a monologue fashion. So he doesn't know what we know right now in the story, but he must have kingly discernment if he's going to be a good king. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 26, says that a wise king separates out the wicked. He turns the threshing wheel over them. If he's going to stand any chance, he has to have the ability to smell out a scoundrel. And he does. Verse 15, David tells us why he has this man executed. Your blood be upon your head, for your own mouth testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, we might say, what's so bad about this Amalekite-assisted suicide? Why does David take that so seriously? Well, it has everything to do with the fear of the Lord. If you've been following this story, David places a premium on protecting the Lord's anointed because the Lord's anointed represents God's right to call who will be next king. And God determines when life ends and when life begins. And you don't play God in those matters. If you have any fear of God, you don't get involved in those matters. So it's really about the fear of God. And David was a man who feared God. It was sacrosanct for him. In fact, It should be sacrosanct for all of God's people. Why? Well, it's not because God's like waiting to zap you every time you step outside of the lines of his will. No, it has nothing to do with that. It's far more relational than that, I would suggest. If God has made a difference in your life, if God is your father, if God is leading your life, then fearing him is the respect that any one of us should give to a father. It makes me think of this story I read this week. It was of a Polish prince. He would carry a picture of his father next to his heart. And at certain times, he used to take the picture out and look at it and say to himself, let me do nothing unbecoming so excellent a father. Listen, if your life of faith is going to make any waves, any difference in this world, that must be your way. You must be so confident in God, so respectful of God, that the fear of God in your life is controlled by the love that you have for God in your life. When those two things are in proper balance You are obedient to God, but you feel the pleasure of God in your life as well. And here, 
we see David as a man who cares about the fear of God. Now, I want to move into another aspect of David here. It's interesting how we see two sides of David side by side, right? On one side, we see the king's discernment, but on the other side, we also see that he's not a cold, analytical Sherlock Holmes type. He's a king who cries. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for clothes. Uh, for Saul and for Jonathan. Now, we've all seen manufactured tears. We call those crocodile tears. Sometimes when we see like movie star types and political figures crying about something in front of the camera, we say to ourselves, that's eh, not genuine. But what do genuine tears tell us? Well, they tell us what you care about, what's on your heart. What do you cry about? What moves you? I hope something moves you. You have to care about something. And what we find out is the things that we cry over are the things that are most central to our concern and our passions in life. It's interesting here that David displays a magnanimous sort of grief. He actually cries over his enemy, Saul. And if we've been traveling with David through this story, we've seen that he really obeys that commandment of love that Jesus gave us, where he says, love your enemy. We've been watching the movements of this enemy love in the life of David. It begins in the cave where he spared his enemy. Then we move to the camp where he forgives a repeat offender, and he actually determines within himself, no matter how many times Saul offends me, I'm not going to strike him down. Now here in this section, we watch the king honor his enemy, even in death. Now, it's incredible to watch David honor Saul. Notice what he does. First, he refuses to erase Saul's memory. Think about David's art gallery again. How many pictures fill that gallery with Saul hurting him, betraying him, going back on his word. It would be easy in, in David's case with all of those unresolved questions where you're like, why is Saul doing this to me? What did I ever do to him? Why would he keep pursuing me in this sort of way to change Saul's name to he who must not be named? But he doesn't do that. Instead, he writes a poem about him and he says in verse 18 that this is to be told to all the people of Judah. Now, in this time period, oral and written poems like this were a way of preserving the memory of the nation. So David is not erasing Saul here. He's coming out and he's saying, my enemy should be remembered. Also, we see that David refuses to share the bad news with Saul's enemies. Look at verse 19 and 20. The text says, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen, tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. 
lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. It's almost like David is protecting Saul in the sense that he doesn't want the bad publicity to get into the enemy camp. He cares so much about the national identity and the glory of God that he would never want this information to make it over into Philistine territory. Now take that to heart for a moment in the day and age where we live where every piece of information needs to get out there. You know, how do you handle this kind of information? Well, many of us in the social media age, we repost this kind of information. We share this kind of information. We like this kind of information and comment as to why Saul got his comeuppance. But what about this idea? What if we didn't share every piece of bad news that we heard? And so what if it's true? Does it mean that you have to share it with anyone and everyone? Is it sometimes not better to keep it to yourself? I like what Ray Pritchard says. It's just great advice. He says, unless there is actual biblical reason, and unless you are telling the news to the right people at the right time, in order to bring about justice and healing. So what we're talking about there is constructive. I'm sharing this because it's going to help someone, not destructive. I'm sharing this so that I can ruin someone. So unless I have a constructive reason to speak, why not just keep it to myself I mean, I can live with the information, right? It's not going to burn a hole through me. One more principle. David refuses to mention anything negative about Saul. I mean, everyone kind of knows, right? They, they know what kind of king Saul was. But there's no need for David to get out ahead of the news cycle and set the record straight on all the merits of the Davidic administration and all the, you know, corruptions of the Saulite administration. No, as you look to David, as he speaks of Saul in this text, he only shares positive information about Saul, which then tells us, after all, that you can indeed always find something positive to say about someone. Now, David notes that Saul was courageous in battle. In verse 22, the sword of Saul returned not empty. We also see that he notes Saul's close relationship with Jonathan. In verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely in life and in death, they were not divided. And here's the thing, he did have a tense relationship with his son, but at the heart of hearts, David knew that Saul loved Jonathan. Finally, David says that Saul was instrumental in advancing the nation's prosperity. Verse 24, O daughters of Israel, Weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery. Now, obviously, Saul didn't go around and give everyone clothes. But he brought about a security that resulted in prosperity. And that's always true. When there's a good government in force that provides security, the people of the land experience prosperity. 
What we see happening in this text is David being a good transitional leader. This is so significant. Each one of us in life will experience times where we are involved in transitions, whether it's at work, or maybe the loss of a family member in our life, or the life and body of a church. There's a lot of change that comes about. Now, this change in the life of Israel is devastating. It's disorienting. What do you do as a nation when your king is falling and you are left with a leadership vacuum? Well, David shows us the way. He shows us that it's never wise to step into a leadership role and pretend like those who came before didn't exist. He, he shows us that it's never wise if something tragic happens to just simply move on and, and not acknowledge the tragedy. Here's a principle that you really need to tuck away and keep in the back of your mind. It's always wise to close the door behind you before you open up the next door in front of you. We all have to learn how to do this. One of our sister churches in Converge Northeast in our district has been walking through this in their own church family. Several months ago, quite sadly, their pastor took his own life. And I didn't, I didn't know this pastor personally, but what I hear of him is that he was a great pastor, that he loved his people, that he shared the word of God in a sound way, but for whatever reason, life just got to him. He went into that dark well that people can go into in depression and sadly this time didn't come out of it. And it really hurt my heart. I mean, think about what it would be like to be in that place or the effect upon the family or the disruption that it would create to the church. What do you do with that? If you're a body, what do you do first? What do you do next? How do you move forward? Well, of course, as we're looking at David, we realize that the first step always with something like that is lament. You cry. You go through the process of grief and the bitterness that's involved with an experience like that. You find ways to acknowledge and honor the person. You certainly do not open up a search committee a month later and say, we need to fill the pulpit again. Now, as far as I understand, this church is doing that well. And of course, we're learning from David that we all are going to come at crossroads like that where we have to transition in a humble and honorable way like this. Now, I want to move into chapter 2. And it's here in chapter 2 that David starts seeking the guidance from the Lord involved with transition. He asks if he should go back to Judah, and the Lord tells him to go. He then asks, to which place should I go? And the Lord tells him Hebron. Now, here's the thing. By going to Hebron, David is now officially burning his Philistine bridges, okay? Philistia represented a safety net for David. When things got hard, where did he run? Gath. But now, as he goes to Hebron, 
that safety net is gone. And this is a principle that we need to understand about the life of faith. You know you have entered into the realm of faith when you trust God enough to burn your safety nets. When you start walking with him and say, Lord, as I enter into this next step, it's only you and you alone who are going to lead me forward. Now you're in faith. Otherwise, you are in a half-hearted place. You're just dipping your toes in the water. But David goes all in. And we see the significance of this place, Hebron. It's the king's first city. It's a city with a rich history with the people of God. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah are all buried in this place. But I'll tell you, it's not the best place to begin a king's administration because it is kind of like a backwaters place. It's not like the center of power for the nation of Israel. And with all of this buildup with God saying that David's going to be the king of Israel and that he's going to be leading this nation and he's going to be a man after God's own heart, you know how many tribes begin with David? A whopping one. Judah. That's it. Now, as I read this story, I can't help but think, man, God does things a lot differently than we do. In fact, the more you read the Bible and read the stories of the Bible, you think, this is just like God. I mean, he never advances his kingdom with pomp and circumstance involving the right people in the right locations. He's not a grandstanding God. God likes to advance his kingdom with small people and small places and small beginnings. That's how he tends to work in the scriptures. In fact, Jesus said that's how the kingdom of God works. In Luke chapter 13, you remember this parable? What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and then it grew and became a big tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. God is the God of humble origins. He advances his kingdom when he calls an unknown figure named Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan and to commence his promised land initiative. He advances his kingdom when a little baby named Moses is set in a reed basket and pushed down the Nile River. He advances his kingdom when this Eighth son, this forgotten eighth son, is called out of the shepherd field and he's anointed with oil. He, he advances his kingdom when that shepherd king begins his administration in a backwater place called Hebron. Like a mustard seed, his kingdom advances as this preacher from Nazareth begins to go around all of Galilee and he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then it advances even further as he calls a fisherman, or several fishermen, a zealot and a tax collector. And he says to them, come and follow me. And then as he goes about preaching, a group of women are following him and supporting his ministry and helping him to advance his message. It advances as he dies a bloody gory, shameful death on the cross. And the first people to show up to the tomb to see that it's empty 
or a group of women that no one would believe. And then these uneducated men that he called to follow him, they go and they preach, he is risen. You see, this is how God works. He works with humble origins. He's still working like that today in our own time. Tonight as we gather at 5 p.m. at Dallas's Beach, there will be mustard seeds coming forward and sharing about what God is doing in their lives. And I'll tell you, these mustard seeds, they all come from different places with different stories, and none of them are going to stand up and say, you know, I was like God's anointed from birth, and I just kind of been making it happen from day number one. No, God intervened in their life, and they are engaged in the process of transformation. Why? Because God delights in demonstrating his power through no-name people from non-places, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven will be people that we've never heard of. Let's look at the king's favor. We've seen his discernment. We've seen that he cares about the right things, that he humbly operates out of non-places. And lastly, I'm keenly interested in who does the king extend favor to? verse 4 of chapter 2, David is told that the men of Jabesh-Gilead buried the body of Saul. Now, you have to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 31. I encourage you to read that story this week. And you'll see there that these men are quite courageous at great risk to themselves. They go into Philistine territory. They capture the body of Saul and his sons, which are being displayed like trophies. They bring it back to Israel and they bury them in an honorable fashion. Now, there's an expression that sticks with me a lot, and it says that we celebrate what we value. We celebrate what we value. We celebrate when a godly young woman like Ava grows in the Lord and She's going to go on and do great things for the Lord. We celebrate that here. We celebrate mustard seeds telling their story about life and faith and transformation that Jesus is producing in their heart. We celebrate the generosity of the church because we're not just a four walls kind of church, but we're a church for the community with a heart for the community. So we go outside the doors of the church. We celebrate when God answers prayers. Now look at what David is celebrating Loyalty, courage, selflessness. He blesses these men. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. After honoring them, he actually invites them into his administration because David says, these are the kind of guys that I want representative of my administration. So here again, we see him valuing character above political alliances, loyalty above ability. Now, these are men of ability. They went and did something remarkable but it was the loyalty that stuck out to David. What, let me ask you, what do you celebrate? What do you 
acknowledge in others? What elicits your praise and your admiration in other people? I'm telling you, that says a lot about who you are because we celebrate what we value. In World War II, the first great Allied victory of the war involved squeezing the Germans out of North Africa. Now, Winston Churchill of England was a great leader because he could anticipate things. He could see things as they were developing, and he would get out ahead of those things. So six months before this great conquest would begin, he was tempering the expectations of his own nation. He said these words, this is not the end. It is not the beginning of the end, it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Now, Churchill was right. The war would go on, and I have to say, that's how I feel as we come to an end of this series in the life of David. This is the end of the beginning, because we have a lot more of 2 Samuel to work through, and we could go over into 1 Chronicles and see just a, a different side or aspect of the same story of David's administration as king. We've been asking the question in this series, from shepherd boy to king, how is it that David became the greatest king of Israel? And what we're coming to find out even now at the end of the beginning is that it's not about David, really. It's about God. In fact, David's not the hero of this story. God is. Now, I don't dare to claim that I can read this text as well as Paul Gage did for our little bumper video, but let's look at Psalm 78 again. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. And with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hands. God is still working in this way in our world today. I think there's always a great decision before us a great acknowledgement before us. God is working out his grand narrative. And the question that comes before each one of us as God is working out this narrative is do I want to play a supporting role in the greatest story ever told, the story of eternity, the story of God proclaiming his glory and redeeming lost people and consummating it all to make all things new? Am I okay with a supporting role in that story or do I want to be the lead character in my own little story? I'll tell you, we're talking about the kingdom of heaven. The, the, the smallest supporting role in the greatest story ever told is light years greater than the biggest role in the world's story. So which do you want to be your life? If you want to enter into the significance and the purpose of God and the mission of God and the grand things that God's doing, you have to acknowledge who the narrator is of your life, and it's him. It's always him. 
and to follow him, like David, you must be willing to leave the sheepfold and go wherever he calls you to go. A lot of times, the going just involves changing your heart and your mind right where you live. Becoming about his purposes right here for his glory, within your own family, within your own neighborhood. Are you willing to do that? Let me ask you to bow your heads with me. Because this journey of leaving the sheepfold, really it begins by giving your heart to Jesus. You know, God sent his son into the world for a grand purpose. It was to redeem lost people, to bring them back to himself. And maybe this morning you're saying to yourself, I'm ready to get on that path to trust him, to allow God to be the narrator of my life. Well, that begins with taking these three steps, I suggest to you. The first step is this, to realize that you are not God and that you are powerless to achieve God's favor or earn his forgiveness. Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. I can't earn my way back to God. I need Jesus. So the second step then is to believe that Jesus is God and that he died on the cross for your sins, and that he is risen from the dead. In John 14, 6, Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the only way. And the third step is to make it real. Lose the safety net. Trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Turn your life and your will over to the care and control of Jesus Christ and allow him to work in and through you. If you're in that place this morning, if you know God is calling you to follow him, I encourage you to pray this prayer quietly in your heart with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the only Savior and the risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want you to come into my life at this moment. As best as I know how, I turn my life over to your care and your control. Amen.